I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Is there anything you'd like to ask me about being white? Yeah, you know, I'd love to know uh, what you plan to do now that you understand your whiteness a little better to to dismantle it. What am I going to do to dismantle white privilege? Now that you understand it, what are you going to do with I don't know if I do understand it. I I can acknowledge it, but I'm not sure if I understand. You have a lot of money. You have a show. You can't have my money. (laughs) (laughs) What can can you you do? And you can't have my show. Why do, you, why do you think people are uncomfortable talking about race? Why do you think white people are uncomfortable talking about race? I feel guilty for anyone who does not have the things I have. And that includes, you know, black people or anyone, because I am so blessed that I think there's always the fear that it will be taken from you. And then what can you do to manage that guilt? Like, what have you found? I drink a fair amount. You drink? <laughs> <laughs> You're great. I, get, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know, I'm shooting from the hip here. I had you on the show, does that help at all? You know, baby steps, gotta start baby somewhere, steps, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Gotta create space for the conversation. We uh-huh. can't address what we don't talk about. I was at the March on Washington, does that help? You, you were at the March on Washington? I was, my mom was there and she was pregnant with me. That was civil rights activist DeRay McKesson on CBS's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He and his instantly recognizable blue down vest have become synonymous with advocacy for victims of police violence and an end to mass incarceration. DeRay is a community organizer who came to national prominence as a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement when he documented and participated in the Ferguson protests following the death of Michael Brown and in so many protests since. He is the author of the best-selling book On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope, He's also the co-founder of Campaign Zero and hosts the Pod Save the People podcast. He has been named one of Time's 20 most influential people on the internet and is in the top dozen of Fortune's world's greatest leaders list. DeRay McKesson, I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast. It is an honor to be here. You're in town speaking with a group of community foundation leaders talking about your book and about hope. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is the notion that freedom is fragile and that we have to work for it. And I'm just curious what the message was that you were delivering to community foundation leaders about hope. When I think about freedom being fragile, I think one of the things that this presidential administration has shown people mm-hmm. is how quickly the government can move if it wants to. Right. You know, I think about 10 years ago, nobody would have thought that you could kick a million people off food stamps that quickly. Like it just, right. people didn't know the government could move that quick. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, it happened. I think about us in St. Louis, it was illegal to stand still in August, September, and October 2014. And we never thought we'd the live five in The five second rule. The right. five second rule. We never thought we'd live in a world where like it'd be illegal to stand still, yeah. that it was actually really fragile. To communities, I said a couple of things. The most important things is I reminded them we, that we never let the system off the hook. That right. part of our work is to always focus on the systems that programs at their best are filling a gap mm-hmm. that the system either refused to address or wouldn't address. That programs will never be the answer at scale. The, the reason why we have a government is because the government operates at scale. So when I think about community foundations, they often fund a lot of programs because that is what is important. It is what ne- is necessary for their mm-hmm. work. But we go into it acknowledging that programs at their best 
are stop gaps. That mm-hmm. like the system actually mm-hmm. is the way to fight at scale. And that the only way to fight at scale is actually to know enough about the system. So I spend most of my time around policing and I started by asking them, uh, what percent of arrests do you think happen for violent crime? Of all the arrests that happen in the country, what percent happen for violent crime? About 11%, I guess. It's 5%? 5%. What percent of people are incarcerated in a private prison? This has got to be about 20%. Eight. Eight percent. And then the last question I asked them is, what does it mean when the police solve a crime? Like, what do you think the police did to get to solve? They got an arrest. Yep. So it literally just means yeah. a proxy for one arrest. Right. It doesn't mean a conviction. It right. doesn't mean like the right person was so arrested. Picking up somebody is as good as gold for closing a yeah. case. Right? Yeah. So I talked about that because I was reminding them that part of our work is also to actively dispel myths. Yeah. That if you think that the majority of crime is happening for violent crime, you're more likely to believe that incarceration matters, that the right. police are part of safety. If you think that the majority of people incarcerated in a private prison, you're more likely to let the government off the hook. Like it must be the private companies. Can't be the government. Nope, it's mm-hmm. the government. Right. Uh, so those are two of the big messages today. Let's talk about the road that brought you there. You were teaching school in, I think, 2014 at the time that you started participating in the protests around Ferguson. Even before that, how did you end up being a person who would take on the dangerous role that you did and take on the risks that you did to speak out in public about a thing that you thought was important? Yeah, I think that. So I taught 12 years ago in New York. I taught sixth grade math which is great. Sixth graders mm-hmm. are incredible. And then I opened up an after-school center, worked in school systems. I was actually working in the central office in Minneapolis when the protest started. So I was a senior director of human capital. So I managed all staffing for the school system. Like I hired everybody from assistant superintendents to principals to teachers to bus drivers. And when I think about what, what called me to the protest in the first place, I spent my whole career, my professional career, working with kids like or working for issues around children and their families. That was like my work. You know, it was this point about, like, I can't give the lip service to, like, believing in kids and working in kids. And I had done the work. I was a teacher. I worked in schools, opened up an after-school program. When I got to Minneapolis, it was like, okay, they killed a kid. He's a teenager. And the least I could do is go down for the weekend. It's Friday night, uh, Saturday morning, 1 o'clock in the morning. I see on the news what's happening. And I'm like, I'm going to go. Like, that was that simple to me. And I was going to go for the weekend to, like, stand in solidarity because I believe in kids, right? And then the second I was in St. Louis was the first night I was tear gassed, and that changed everything. This is the police department. You are violating the state-imposed curfew. You must continue to peacefully, or you'll be subject to arrest and or other actions. What do we get wrong in this country about protest and protesters? You actually write in the book that protest is speaking the truth out loud. So often in the media's coverage of protests, it's just described as people doing scary things that upset other people's normal lives. Clearly, that's not what you believe. And I'm just curious what you think we get wrong in how we cover protests, how we talk about them, how we think about them. I think it's more right today than it certainly was in 2014 that a couple things. One is that we know that the goal of protest is not protest, right? That the goal of protest has changed. That the reason why we stood in the street was like to demand something or to force an issue. When we stood in the street in 2014, it was about saying, you know, we tried to get you to pay attention every other way and people didn't care. But it wasn't until 
a couple buildings burn and people shut down some streets that you started to even acknowledge that this was a problem in the first place. Mm. I think today a lot more of the protests are about sh- like a showing of force, mm. but always mindful that none of the protests exist so that people can keep protesting. Mm. It is so there can be change. And, you know, you think about the beginning. In 2014, we were like demonized. Now being a protest is cool. You know, now it's like even the media, you think about the, the way the media treated the Parkland kids was much mm. more like these noble, heroic kids, which was really powerful. Do you think that's an evolution in how we think about protest, or is that also about race to a certain extent? I think it's about both, but I do think it is what the media got wrong with black protesters in Ferguson, they got right later. And, you know, we had no clue that as many people as did were going to pay attention. We had no clue that, like, you know, in the end, we sort of won what we wanted, right? That, like, the protests spread across the country, there's a generation who sort of realized they had power, like, all those things were huge. They were all these people talking about police violence like we didn't know that was going to happen we just knew we were right and i think that because the protests last so long in the beginning that the media thankfully sort of understood that we weren't lying you know i remember when don lemon got tear gassed you know it was a huge deal because don was one of the people sort of doing the both sides thing on tv then he gets tear gassed and he's like they are tear gassing people we're like we told you you know so like the media's presence was actually helpful because they saw it like chris hayes chris hayes's show was like new and one of his first assignments was to be in st louis with us we were also beginning to hear police over loudspeakers telling crowds to congregate and we were seeing police in riot gear now marching down this stretch of west florissant uh in riot gear and uh ordering people to disperse very fat. Ew. That's gunfire. All right. Uh, just a hail of gunfire just now. Driving down the street. Uh, okay. We're being told to. We're being told to, to fall back. I'm gonna throw to you. Chris saw it with his own eyes, so it wasn't like, oh, this thing is happening. It was like, oh no, no I'm here. You know. Your role in part was to document what was happening. As time passed and you sort of officially became part of protest, you stayed longer than the weekend that you had intended to. And in an excerpt from your book that I think appeared in The Guardian, you talk about this experience of being physically dragged out by police. Even though you were documenting it, did you feel people still didn't believe what was happening to you? No, you know, I'm mindful that I was one of many people in the street, and there were a lot of us who had big roles. One of my roles was to, like, help manage a message on the protesters in. There were a lot of other important roles, like the bail fund people or the people who, like, developed actions all the time. Like, that was important. What was really beautiful about what we were doing in the street is that we were so tunnel visioned that we just looked at what was in front of us and that was okay. Like we were just sort of like laser focused. So we had no clue that the world was watching or it was spreading. So any idea that's ever changed the world started in a a living room or a basement or a porch or a kitchen. Like that is like where these things often Mm. begin, you know? I think it was the tunnel vision really worked to our favor. After the death of Antoine Rose here in Mm. Pittsburgh at the hand of a police officer who shot him in the back and then was later acquitted. There was a protest at one point led by young people in Pittsburgh who managed to run onto one of our major thoroughfares, onto the parkway actually, and block it for a number of hours. And I remember people in town complaining about the inconvenience of that, that that wasn't an quote-unquote appropriate form of protest. And we hear this a lot. We hear it from taking a knee at a football game is not an appropriate form of protest. Marching in the streets is not 
not a, a quote-unquote appropriate form of protest. Blocking traffic is not an appropriate form of protest. And it sort of begs the question of what is an appropriate form of protest. What are people missing who aren't part of the protest about why it's necessary for protesters to make their presence felt in that way? Yeah, I think that, you know, people would be like, we're being inconvenienced. And we're like, we know that's the goal, right? That yeah, like yeah. the inconvenience that you feel sitting in traffic for three hours mm. is just like a slice of the pain people feel because they'll never feel that they'll never like see their loved one again it's like a slice of what people in communities have felt for a long time so the goal is to force this crisis so you feel it so deeply in a concentrated moment so you can get like a modicum of what discomfort feels like when your community's under siege. so you can get like just a taste of what it feels like when your kid walked across the street from the house that morning and never came home you know so when people would say like oh you inconvenienced us it's like we know like that was the whole point was to inconvenience you because we have been inconvenienced so much when you have the chance to actually walk them through the logic of protest do they get it yeah, you know, the goal is never, we don't need you to agree. Right. You know, like, right. we're okay with disagreeing. Right. We want you to feel it. So the question is, like, did they feel the pain? They definitely did, which is why they were mad in the first place. You experienced fear early on in this process. You know, you open your book with this story about coming home to your house and seeing a car parked in the driveway and a guy gets out and what he does ultimately is serve you papers in a lawsuit, but you were afraid that he could have done anything in that moment and you feared for your life. You also comment later that there was a moment where you were no longer afraid, where the idea of being scared of these things just ultimately passed. Can you walk us through that? First of all, why the fear? When did you start becoming an object of hatred and death threats? Yeah, I think that what I learned quickly is that the goal is not to like remove the fear, but the goal is to make sure that fear is not the only emotion that manifests. So like my fear sat alongside my like love and my joy and my happiness and my anger and my rage. That fear was one of the many things. What really paralyzes you is when fear becomes the only emotion or like the overriding emotion. So when I stopped letting fear be the only one, that was really powerful. You know, I've been sued by five police officers in two states. The first person ever permanently banned from Twitter was banned for raising money to try and get me killed. A movie theater was evacuated in Baltimore because somebody said they were gonna kill me. My phone was hacked. You know, I know that all of these things are an attempt to make me too afraid to do the work, right? Mm -hmm. I will never be afraid to tell the truth. We do live in, I think, in an era where there is a rising tide of protest because of the frustration that many people feel about inaction or even counterproductive activity. And yet, the space that you have occupied is kind of unique, in part because of the racial hatred that exists in this country. And you're gay. And so you have the added overlay, which you talk about a lot as well about gender identity and gender orientation and how people use those as proxies for other fights in this country. We're also experiencing at the same time as this rising tide of protest, a rising wave of overt white supremacy. That can be overtly violent. It can espouse all manner of hatreds and acts. When you encounter that, do you look at that through a filter of fear or do you see it just as part of the price of what you're doing. I know that we are fighting for a world that we have not yet seen, but we believe it's possible. And that's just hard work, right? Mm -hmm. That like, we've not seen a world where every kid can eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We've mm -hmm. not seen a world where everybody has access to health care. We've not seen a world where 
people are free to love who they love. We've not seen a world where people are free to be who they are, whether they are in love or not, right? Like we just haven't seen those worlds, but we tell stories about them because we know they're possible, that part of our work in the work of justice, you know, people confuse justice and accountability often, that accountability is what happens after the trauma. Justice is the idea that people shouldn't have to experience trauma in the first place. Mm-hmm. And when we think about the work of justice, it is almost always engaged in the work of make-believe, that we're actually trying to like make up a system where uh, people don't experience a trauma, like we're trying to make it anew. That is like your work in philanthropy, it's my work in active, like all, that's all of what we're trying to do. Right. Uh, it's change the outcomes by making sure that people don't experience the bad ones. Like, that's what we're doing. Uh, and that's how I think about like the subset of things that you asked about, that like mm-hmm. they don't frighten me. Uh, sometimes telling stories about a world you haven't seen is imperfect, right? Mm-hmm. So the people we're up against, you, make America great again is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. It is easy because we survived that world already. Right. We've seen it. Whereas when you talk about, you know, a better future for kids, it's like, who knows what that, that can mean. I'll tell you, like, we don't know what that actually means. So it's Mm -hmm. like, you got to do a whole lot of work to fill that in for people. Right. And that's just hard. And that makes me nervous sometimes. If anything I get like a little afraid about is that the storytelling in that way means that we will make a lot of mistakes. So we'll Mm -hmm. tell some stories that resonate and some stories that don't, that we will like nail it sometimes and we won't nail it other times. Right. And that is hard. Mm -hmm. So that makes me nervous. But other, other things don't. You make a distinction in your book between faith and hope. And you deal with the fact that there's been a lot of discussion about the expectation that white people often place on black people to carry the burden of hope. Help us understand the distinction you're making between faith and hope. Yeah, I think it is simple. This idea that, you know, when King says that the more arc of the universe bends towards justice, that's a statement about faith. He's saying mm-hmm. it bends, right? It's mm-hmm. coming, it bends. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And faith is in some ways about a deep belief about a certainty. Hope is the idea that it can happen. Hope is like the arc will bend because people bend it. Mm-hmm. Hope is actually like the set of actions that lead us to bringing about the world that we know we can live in, but it requires that we actually do it. I've seen mm-hmm. faith sometimes make people a little complacent about their own role and responsibility because they're like, well, it bends. And it's like, no, it only bends because you keep doing something. A few years ago, you spoke at a GLAAD Awards and fundraising event about your experience as a young black gay social justice activist, and you said it's been interesting in the movement space because some people are really homophobic, but they say they like me, whatever that means. Do you find sometimes that you have to be an activist on multiple levels and help people understand multiple multiple forms of identity and oppression? I think that we are always engaged in telling the truth about every facet of who we are, whether we identify as activists or organizers or citizens or leaders or whatever. There are homophobic people who like really like me and it's like, well, I'm not like a respite for your hate. I'm not like a safe space for you to be hateful, right? And there are also people who are homophobic and the way that it manifests is that I could never ever really be strong I can never have a radical idea that that what being gay does is that it strips me of any intensity or urgency. Like that is one of the ways that it manifests, which is interesting. And I know that sometimes I will be fighting for the lives of people who don't value my own, that that's like just a part of what the gamble looks like. And that I don't have to be your friend to think you should still be alive, right? I don't have to be your friend to think that you're like worthy of dinner. I don't have to love you to think that people shouldn't put you in a cage. And I get that, right? That the moment that I start picking and choosing the people who are worthy of being alive, I actually like open up the door for people to do that about me. Not only because I stand here as a, as a proud black gay man, 
And expressing and loving myself is often so much more complex uh, than out affords me. And for so many of us, the world is a place where we're not supposed to make noise, where we're asked to hide who we are and be silent about the injustices that we face. Just because people aren't shouting doesn't mean that they're being silent. And just because people aren't showing up in the ways that you expect doesn't mean that they are hiding. If we do nothing else after this night, let us continue, as my friend and role model Jesse has done, to use our platforms to render visible the invisible, to help us see the beautiful complexity in all of our identity. Thank you. I feel like this is such a common thing to encounter people who will say, you know, I don't know many gay people, but I like this guy. Or I don't like gay people at all, but I like this guy. You know, he's my friend. Or who aren't particularly thoughtful around race, but will say, well, I've got this one black friend. And what do you say to those people when you encounter them? If they're overt about their racism or their homophobia, but they still like you, so when we're dealing with individual people, I'm always mindful that part of our work is to share the cognitive burden that mm. when I'm in rooms like that, it's like, do you really love him? Like, do you love him? And you don't like gay <laughs> right. people? Like, how does that work? Right. right. Like, I'm, I'm asking questions because I want you to, like, do a little more work here. Mm. Right. I'm like, what does love mean? If you, you know, can you love half a person? Can you like, right. I'm trying to tease it out so that they have to do a lot of work. I'm trying not to preach. Right. Mm. Because I think that that will actually like lead to you might have in a different mindset or like a different set of behaviors. Mm-hmm. So in those ways, with one-on-one interactions, like I'm really trying to set it up so that the other person is doing a lot of cognitive work. There's this marvelous story that you tell in your book about the moment you discovered white people could be wrong. You describe sitting in class and your white teacher said something that was wrong and you knew it was wrong and she knew it was wrong and she immediately said it was wrong. I'd just like you to talk about that experience of whiteness that you grew up with and how that moment affected you. Yeah, so I grew up in an all-black community, and then we moved in sixth grade to a majority white community. So I had, like, white teachers and all that stuff for the first time. So the whiteness that we saw was, like, TV, and it was the doctors, and it was the people at the bank, and it was all these professional services around us because they weren't in my neighborhood, and they certainly weren't around school. So my idea of whiteness was very, like, it was right, it was, like, business owners and I don't know that was like what white was so then I saw these teachers and it was like well all the white people on TV are right or like I don't know that's what it was like so when she was wrong I was like white people can be wrong it was just like this thing I remember being like wow like I just didn't know you know uh, and I was young I was like 11 you before that grew up in what we would call a tough neighborhood you read about sleeping on the floor when you heard gunshots and your parents as I understand it struggled with drugs how did that inform who you later became? What I saw so deeply, so both of my parents were addicted to drugs. My mother left when I was three. My father raised us. And I think what I sort of lived through and saw was the beauty of community and redemption, that I mm-hmm. sort of saw neighborhoods come together to do things that the government hadn't done or refused to do. I saw people figure out how to keep their community safe and clean in the absence of a structure that would do it for them. I saw people realize that they needed help, um, more help than they could do themselves, and I saw people provide that help, you know. I saw people have really flexible understandings of what family looked like, and I saw love at scale. So those things really changed me. I think I also saw in Baltimore what it was like for a system to just give up on people, Mm. what it was like 
uh, for us to deem that some people are worthy and some people are not. You're poor and like you must have done something wrong. Right. That was like the way we, the city sort of operated, right. right? Right. And I didn't have the language for it at the time, but as an adult, I was like, wow, I like, you know, I always think about there was no grocery store close to our house. So we drove like 20 minutes to the grocery store. And I remember being like, well, my grandmother just loved, she must love this grocery store. Like I never even had the expectation that there should be a grocery store in our neighborhood because like there was never a grocery store in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? And it's those things that like really changed the way that I thought about society. And, you know, I think about, you know, it's why we don't praise resiliency in kids. Mm. Like we acknowledge it, but like you shouldn't have to be resilient. You shouldn't have to grow up with these like resiliency mechanisms to offset the trauma you face. You know, mm. you should actually just grow up without trauma created at the system level. Yeah, amen to that. Speaking of resilience, you have written about two influences on your life that are not often paired. So one is God, and the other is X Men. And you talk about having gone to church because you had to, but that Storm raised you. Storm, of course, is a character in the X-Men. Can you say a little bit about that and why Storm and how she affected you? Yeah, think about what is the difference between a celebrity and a hero? Mm. The celebrities are often spectacles, like a Kim Kardashian. Yeah. And heroes actually, at their best, live out a set of values that exemplify like the height of what it means to be human. And X-Men were like the first time that I like saw heroes and Storm was like a person who had a set of values and I was like, wow, this means something, you know? Killing is not the X-Men's way. Morlocks, you no longer need to live in darkness. As your leader, I offer you safe haven at the mansion with the X-Men. You are outcasts no more. When humanity accepts mutant kind, then we will come to the surface. When such acceptance is achieved, I shall return to you. And that taught me so much more about like what it meant to be a good person than anything I learned in church. Church was like ritual. The stories that I knew the most were like the Saturday morning cartoons and the, you know, and Storm was a big part of that. So that chapter is called I Was Raised by Magic. It was a sense of possibility and a sense of wonder mm-hmm. in cartoons that really like changed my own understanding of ability, power, and community. And I love that. And I, and I love the distinction, by the way, between celebrity and hero, because I think in an era where we've got a celebrity in the White House, that distinction feels so valuable and so lost. I want to talk for a moment about the conversation that's coming from the White House about race and how how you're feeling about it at the moment. You know, I think we're in some ways having more attention paid to race in our national conversation than we have in a long time. There seems to be a willingness on the part of people of good faith to try and talk about it in a way that they haven't perhaps in a long time. But we have this absolutely horrible narrative coming out of the White House that is willing to use race as a means of dividing Americans. How are you feeling about that at the moment, what you're seeing in the country in terms of the dialogue around race? It's bad. I don't have like much to say besides it's bad and dangerous. You yeah. know, we know it's bad and dangerous. I think that there are a lot of people, myself included, who just didn't 
you know, I didn't underestimate Trump, which is why I publicly supported Hillary. I believed everything he said he'd do. He did it more. The rhetoric around race is problematic, but the pace with which he's been able to make decisions is actually sort of unbelievable, right. you know? And before the election, I was at this event, and Paul Begala said something that I thought was interesting. He was like, if Trump gets elected, trying to undo what he has done will be like trying to unring a bell. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is apt. That like he has just like fundamentally changed the structure of the right. government in such an incredible way in four years that it'll take a while to do the cleanup. And you know, you think about you know we'll fix the structure, but you won't be able to make up for the lives that have been damaged in really permanent ways, uh, which is I think a part of the the plan on their part. But it is interesting. It's like a, uh, it's a wild thing. We also think about things like, do you know the downside to the first step back, Trump's like criminal justice thing? Do you know the first step back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the midst of divisiveness and absolute chaos in Washington, something is actually getting done on Capitol Hill. One of the biggest reforms in decades has just passed the Senate. It's called the First Step Act. It's a sweeping bipartisan bill that overhauls parts of the federal criminal justice system. Supporters say it'll make the system fairer, it'll reduce prison overcrowding, and it'll save taxpayer money. After all of the work and effort, we passed the bill and I proudly signed it into law, the most significant criminal justice reform in many generations. So what's the downside? So 3,000 people got released, right. which is a good thing. Right. 750 of them got deported immediately. Not a win, right? Yeah, right. We actually don't trade out immigrants for drug dealers. Like We right. don't like swap people. That's not a best practice. Apparently and we do. but Apparently yeah. we do, right? And yeah. what's scary about it is that all the Democrats voted for it, right? All the yeah. people we love, the Warren... Kamala, Corey, AOC, like the people who hold down the left, you know? Mm -hmm. How do you trust a piece of legislation coming from a president that none of you trust, right? Mm -hmm. Those things make me nervous. It's like if all the good guys, if the people who are like holding down the ideological front miss things like that, then we are in a bad place. I would agree with that. You were an early supporter of Black Lives Matter, co-founder of Campaign Zero, which focuses on data-informed solutions to ending police violence in America. All of this stuff with the president and the administration is going on in the background, but the data are sobering on this issue, the issue that got you activated in the first place. You know, more than a 1,000 killed by police each year, nearly 60% had no weapons, so unarmed. Are we making progress? Yes, the top line is that the police have actually killed more people since the protests, not less, Mm -hmm. not a win. I think that we are mindful to never confuse a change in conversation with a change in outcomes. Mm-hmm. And the conversation has fundamentally changed about race and justice. The outcomes have not changed. Mm-hmm. We know the answers that'll change the outcomes. So with the police, there are a lot of things that are really popular that will not change the outcomes. Community policing has no impact on outcomes. Training, mm-hmm. none. Body cameras, no impact on outcomes. But those are ostensibly the four most popular things. Right. Like Joe Schmo, who is not an expert on policing, would be like, oh. uh, the two things that we know matter are police union contracts, because they essentially protect police from accountability. And then the second is use of force policies. So, mm-hmm. And most of these things are really common sense. So like we know that... It's a measurable decrease in police violence when we ban chokeholds, when we restrict you from shooting into moving vehicles, when we make you give a warning before shooting somebody. Like all these things that like your grandmother could probably list as things that she might imagine 
would make it safer. And that I'll bet most Americans think you have to do. Anyway. And with police, it's like they are, you know, you got to give it to them, brilliant strategists because they essentially create these mechanisms by which they can't be held accountable. So in California, the law says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome. And who runs the investigation? The police, right? Mm-hmm. So it's those sort of things that we track across the country that are uh, so, they so fly in the face of what mm-hmm. justice looks like, uh, and we push people in that. You have said, and I absolutely love this, you've said that your real work is to build a bigger choir, not necessarily to reach across the aisle. And I don't think you're dismissing the idea of working with people of different ideological stripes, but the idea that we need a bigger and better choir to be fighting for the sort of change you just described is to me a novel thought. I'd not heard anybody say that before. And I just would love for you to expand on what you mean by it. Yeah, I was at like a, I was doing something and somebody, it was like a Q&A and somebody was like, do you ever worry that you're preaching to the choir? And I was like, you know what? I'm all, sign me up for the choir. I want to preach to the choir all day. The choir is a good thing. Being the choir is a good thing. Uh, so you've heard that Baldwin quote that's like, uh, love is a growing up. Mm-hmm. Like love is a battle. Love is a growing mm-hmm. up. A lot of people have not read the essay that came from. It's called In Search of a Majority. Mm-hmm. He writes, this brings me back in a way to where I started. I said that we couldn't talk about minorities until we had talked about majorities. And I also said that majorities had nothing to do with numbers or with power, but with influence, with moral influence. And I want to suggest this, that the majority for which everyone is seeking, which must reassess and release us from our past and deal with the present and create standards worthy of what a man may be, this majority is you. No one else can do it. The world is before you and you need not take it or leave it as it was when you came in. He starts with this question of like, uh, I've been asked to talk about minority communities, but before I talk about minority community, we actually have to figure out like, what is the majority, right? Like mm-hmm. this is his whole exercise. Like, And what he reminds us is that the majority is not a mechanism of numbers and it's actually not even a function of power, but it's a function of influence. What the people are up against have figured out is like a better strategy of influence. They just have figured it out, you know? So like purging people from the voters' roles is a brilliant strategy, nefarious and insidious, but brilliant for their goals. And then one of the things that we have to do is like we have to make sure that the people on our end have a familiar set of songs to sing, understand the messages, know each other to be able to do the work. Like that's what happens in a choir, you know? What the best choirs do is the best choir director realizes that you had a voice before you got here. That part of my work is to help you fine tune it, to help you figure out how to use it with other people, and then to remind you that you'll have this voice long after you've left the choir. So I'm always trying to figure out how to build the biggest choir. I think this is such a brilliant concept. And, you know, I think about it in terms of the environment, for example, which for years the environmental movement has struggled with the fact that the vast majority of Americans support environmental protection legislation, care about climate change, and yet always get beaten at the polls. It's partly because the choir isn't being effective in focusing on raw power the way that you've just described. You know, I think the left is often seduced to believe that the best idea wins. What winners know mm-hmm. is that the best idea does not always win. Yeah. It's the idea that people understand and can repeat. So right. you don't have to know anything about healthcare to be like death panels is bad, right? right. Like you, <laughs> right. death panels right. is a total lie, but it like works as yeah. an idea. It's easy. Yeah. It's whereas the like left's pitch on healthcare is like this really long <laughs> Medicare for all versus universal single pay, like. Mm-hmm. 
my aunt, I'm always trying to figure out how to talk to my aunt. Mm. To my aunt, I'm like, everybody should have a doctor. They should be able to see the doctor when they're unhealthy. And they should be able to, there should be an affordable price for both uh, a medical procedure mm. and prescriptions. Mm. That's my message. Keep it simple. That's right. the idea. You know right. what I mean? What's next for you? Same thing. I am, I think we can win. So the reason I still do this work is I think we will look back and be like, wow, that was really hard, but we did it. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to figure out like, how do we change structures so we can change the outcomes that like, you know, we changed the conversation. We did it. It was mm-hmm. dope. It's still changed. It is incredible to see as many people focus on issues of race and identity and things that were not happening before the protests. Mm-hmm. So see change. The outcomes just haven't changed yet, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do this work until the outcomes change. Do you ever get lonely? Uh, I get tired, lonely. I'm tired mm-hmm. of traveling. I'm ready to go home in general. I'm like yeah. always ready to go home. <laughs> uh, I think there'll be a time where I'm like not going to work in this way. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is important to me and I'm willing to do it in this way. Like a lot of travel, a lot of talks. And cause I think we, I really do think we can win. I think if I didn't think we can win, I, I'd be, I'd just be making different choices. Right. But so the question is like, how do we do it in a way that'll be real? And I think that we're, I think that we're close. I think that we're like building a critical mass, partly because so many people have seen these images. You think about Antoine Rose, you think about, before him, you probably there probably wasn't a person in a community that you knew mm-hmm. who had been a victim. There were these other stories, but mm-hmm. like it wasn't an issue to it wasn't close to you, you right. know. Right. But there are a lot of people for whom this is actually like not a you know. In the beginning, people thought Ferguson was the problem; they didn't think America was the problem. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Now people are like, okay, there's a yeah. problem in America, and right. that's like a. <laughs> right. yeah. And you're smart enough to ask questions. You're smart enough mm-hmm. to be like, I think you shot him in the back. Right. And like, that doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas before, people would be like, well, the police said it was okay, so it's right. okay, you know? Right. Whereas now you're like, I don't really yeah. know if that's okay, you know? Maybe we need to investigate that. And, yeah, yes, or maybe yeah. I just like don't, I don't trust this whole narrative, so I have yeah. more questions, right? Yeah. And those things are huge um, because you think about five years ago, we were not, the police said something, people reported it as fact. Right. Whereas now the police say stuff and you're like, Okay. okay, lie to me better. Right. Like, this is not, <laughs> right. not right. it. The name of our podcast is We Can Be, and it's kind of an incomplete sentence that I like to end by asking our guest to just complete the sentence for us. How would you complete that sentence? We can be what? Free. We can be free. We can be free. Fabulous. Boom. Boom. Thank Boom. you. Boom. <laughs> DeRay quotes James Baldwin's In Search of a Majority essay when he says, we can't talk about minorities until we talk about majorities. And the world is as it is before you, and you need not take it or leave it as it was when you came into it. DeRay is not leaving the world as it was when he came into it or as it is now. He has been a key voice of the new activists who have faced head-on the tragedy and injustice of violence and incarceration. Through his honesty, bravery, and heartfelt actions, he has helped change the national conversation on race, identity, and justice. In the past several years, as police violence against young black men has made itself known in cities as diverse as Ferguson, New York, Baltimore, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and on down a list that stretches across the country, it is clear that the problem is not with any one individual city, but with deeply ingrained racism within the fabric of our country. 
DeRay is facing the collective force of that head-on, telling hard truths and inspiring us all to wake up and work to leave the world not as we came into it, but better and more just for everyone. 